Those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I am the uh, pastor of student ministries here. Uh, it is a joy to always be up here and be able to open up the Word. So if you have your Bibles, if you could please open up to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Um, we're going to take time to study verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. But we're actually going to start in verse 27 of chapter 1. So Philippians 1, 27. Um, for those of you, once again, who don't know about uh, my situation, I, I took on this position at First Alliance Church last September, and uh, just this past March, my wife and I packed up our house near Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, moved it all and settled down in a house here in Erie. Um, we have a joke in Ohio that could probably be said of Erie as well, that there's four distinct seasons in Ohio. Um, there's almost winter, winter still winter, and construction season. The, the reason that I say that it could probably be said of Erie is because I fell victim this past week to the effects of construction season in Erie. Uh, just past Thursday, I was driving home from work, and I, I come around, I go to Gary's Road, if you were to take a left out of the parking lot, and uh, Gary's runs right into Hershey Road, and they've been repaving Hershey Road. So I get all the way down to Gary's Road uh, to find a man standing in the middle of the road with a orange hat. And I was like, what's this joker doing? He's going to get hit or something. But what I found was he is actually turning cars back around. He was turning and he was sending them the other way. They weren't letting anybody get on Hershey Road from Gary's. Uh, and my first selfish thought was, this would have been nice to know like five minutes ago. Uh, but I turned my car around and I made, I made my way. Uh, you you got to understand about me, I'm the type of guy who wants to get from point A to point B as fast as possible um, while still remaining legal, all right? Uh, we're driving 16 students to Chicago tomorrow, so you can pray for them. Um, <laughs> but you won't ever find me taking the scenic route. I'm always the guy that wants to get there as soon as possible. And I think you might be able to share a little bit of my frustration with just your classic road closed sign or the roadblock because it prohibits us from getting to the destination that we want in a timely manner. I believe that when we approach Scripture, uh, that there are often roadblocks that we put up in our, in our heart and in our mind as we approach Scripture. And the two roadblocks that I think are most popular are just that, the roadblock of the mind, uh, or an intellectual roadblock, meaning I'm reading the passage, but I don't understand it. Or there's a roadblock of the heart, Meaning I'm reading the passage and I don't want to understand it. This passage in Philippians, um, I would say a lot of people may have a roadblock of the heart with this, with this passage. It's a very straightforward passage. It's not very hard to understand, but you may look at it and say, Mike, I see this and I understand it, but I don't want to apply it to my life. And so I want you to just take a second to ask God to remove that roadblock of your heart out of the way and be willing and open to see how He can change you. We're going to start in verse 27 of chapter 1 in Philippians. It says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear Lord, I pray as we study Paul's words, your words, Lord, that wherever there needs comfort, that you would comfort. Wherever there needs encouragement, you would encourage. And wherever, Father, there needs conviction, you would convict. I pray, Lord, that we would make much of your word and less of me. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. Before we begin, it's important to understand the context of this passage in the whole of the letter of Philippians. When Paul wrote this, um, it was intended to be read all together, all at once. It's not like you know they would go through it piece by piece um, like we do now when we study it more in depth. But with the original readers, they would read the entire letter right then and there. Um, and so the reason we started in verse 27 is because this passage in verses 1 through 11 is strongly tied to those uh, last four verses in the first chapter. Um, there's actually a word of transition missing between um, chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the NIV. In the original, uh, in the original writing, in the original Greek, uh, the word therefore actually sat right between where we find chapter 1 and chapter 2. And anytime you see therefore in Scripture, you always have to look what came before it because what comes after it is as a result of what's happened. And so what Paul is saying is that in light of the fact that you're going through these struggles that you see that I, that I had and I still have, be unified. He's telling the Philippian church, I see that you are going through a tough time. You are getting persecuted. Uh, you are facing outside um, oppression. And you can't control that. But there's also forces inside that are battling each other. 
And if you ever expect to face the outside forces that you can't control, you better be sure to face and and deal with the inside forces within the church that you can control. If you want to face the people that are fighting you out against you here, make sure you're not fighting within the walls of the church in here. There's division. And this probably hit home for the Philippians because they knew exactly what Paul was referring to. Um, To this point, Philippians has been a very pleasant letter, as you might have seen. Uh, Paul really enjoys the Philippians. They they bring him joy. Uh, He loves them. Uh, This is a nice good letter. But at this point, Paul finally kind of points out the elephant in the room. And they know exactly what it is. And thankfully, if if Pastor Mark has actually challenged us to read all of Philippians um, in one sitting, and if you've done that, you'll actually know in chapter 4, Paul calls out by name, two women who were at odds with each other. They had some kind of a disagreement, and he was pleading with them to get along. It's remarkable that he called them out by name, and that just shows you the severity of the issue and the severity of the division. And now I'm sure you've seen this in your own life. Perhaps you're in business and you have two leaders within the business that want to take the business in a separate direction. Or maybe your family members are in a bitter feud. You have two people in your family that just can't seem to get along. And what happens when two people go at odds against each other is naturally people begin to take sides, don't they? You begin to take sides. I begin to take sides. We start aligning ourselves with who we agree with. And so what started off in the Philippian church as two women just in a disagreement with each other turned out to begin to cause division in the church because you've got this group over here who's siding with one of them, and then you've got this group over here who's siding with the other one. Now, you'll notice in chapter 4, if you read ahead, Paul does not... He does not tell you what the issue is. And he doesn't say, hey, you're right and you're wrong, so deal with it. He just tells them, I want you guys to get along. And so we know the issue wasn't serious enough for for Paul to correct. Um, If it was heretical, if it was against the gospel of Christ, I would imagine that he would correct it and say, no, this this is the correct way of thinking. This is the correct way to go. But he doesn't, and so that just shows us Possibly, potentially, the petty nature of what caused the argument, but that the, the issue isn't about the argument, it's about the woman, women's hearts. And it's about the Philippian uh, church's hearts. He's concerned more with their hearts than the actual issue at hand. And so there's a charge to be unified. He says, I, I don't care what you guys are arguing about, be unified. And so at the very beginning of chapter 2, as we dive in here in verse 1, he has a very personal plea to them. And he points out several things that uh, come from God that um, they have enjoyed as Christians, as Christ followers. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. If, if you've ever experienced God's grace in this way, in, in love, 
through encouragement, through comfort, through fellowship, through tenderness, through compassion. If you have ever experienced the grace of God in that way, then you have a responsibility to pass that on to other people as well. To pass those graces on to other people and be unified. If you are unified with Christ, be unified with His followers. And that's so hard sometimes, right? If, we're, if you're unified with Christ, be unified with others. And Paul carries on in verse 2 and he tells them that if you're unified, this will make my joy complete. One time I was uh, speaking to a mother in, uh, of a student in the youth group. And she said, Mike, one of the greatest things in life for me, one of the, the happiest moments in, in my life is when my children get along. Is when my children get along. You've seen this before, right? You get in a car, on a car trip, and they're already arguing about who gets to sit in the front seat. <laughs> And then the argument carries on into the back seat when you tell them both to get back there, sit down, and be quiet. They start bickering back and forth. I have to go to the bathroom. You always have to go to the bathroom. I'm hot. You're cold. He's touching me. She's looking at me funny, right? And you're just sitting there like, just, just, just get along, please. Just, you would make my joy complete if you just got along. And this is what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. He's saying, just just get along and you would make me so happy. You would fill my heart with joy. It would be so fulfilling if you guys just got along. But he goes deeper with it. He doesn't call us just to be unified, but he calls us to be like-minded. Like-minded. Okay, And there's a difference between uniformity and unity. And here's the difference. Uniformity is often achieved by an outside force or an outside voice saying, this is the way we're going to go and you better follow. And, you know, if, if you want to be in uniform with the leader, you follow. But unity, unity is achieved when an individual, when you as an individual humbly chooses, despite your differences, to love others and stick together. It starts with you in your own heart. And this is, I think, what Paul is addressing when he says, be like-minded. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Not only are we to be like-minded and have the same love, but we have to be one in spirit and in purpose. One in spirit and in purpose. Well, what's our purpose? Pastor Mark talked about it last week. It's found in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, this is the problem when we set agendas in the church that don't have this purpose in mind. Is that we naturally force people to take sides. We naturally force people to take sides and we cause division. Now let me tell you, any time that you love anything else more than you love the gospel of Christ, unity is at risk. Any time you love the preaching style, 
the worship style, the building, a specific ministry, more than you love the gospel of Christ, you are a threat to unity within the church. Those are all good things. I want you to have preferences on those things. If we didn't have preferences on those things, we would live a very boring life within the church. However, make sure that you love the gospel more than any of those things. Make sure you love the gospel anymore. And so I want you to ask yourself the question, do I love the gospel of Jesus Christ more than anything else in the entire world? And if you say yes, do your actions support your claim? Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there, but he actually gives us the how-to. Basically, he says, be unified, but this is how you're to be unified, and it's found in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now all of a sudden, we've been, um, he's been addressing the church as a whole, and now it's gone from a group level to an individual level. He addresses you personally. He says, each of you, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. So the only way that you can assure for yourself that you are unified is when you take responsibility for your own actions. Because you can't control what he's going to say. You can't control what she's going to do. But there is one person that you can have full control over, and that's yourself. And so take responsibility over yourself and don't worry about what anybody else is doing or saying because you can't, you can't control them, but you can yourself. He mentions selfish ambition and vain conceit. Those two items are mortal enemies to the harmony of the church. In fact, if you were to look at Galatians 5.20... Selfish ambition is listed actually as one of the acts of a sinful nature. And all of these acts in a sinful nature are used to contradict um, the fruit of the Spirit. And so when you are being selfishly ambitious, you are actually going against what the Spirit is prompting you to do. Uh, If you're unclear what those two phrases mean or what they look like, if you were to open up a dictionary and look up ambition, it would say a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. So selfish ambition naturally is a strong desire to do or achieve something for oneself. It's a strong desire to achieve something where you are the one that benefits. Conceit, if you were to look up conceit in the dictionary, it would say excessive pride in oneself. So naturally, vain conceit would be an empty excessive pride in oneself, an empty glory, a baseless glory. A baseless glory, in a sense, it would be like saying, look at me, but there's nothing to look at. In the, in the ESV, 
In the NIV, it says, in humility, consider others better than yourself. The ESV would translate, actually, this as, consider others more significant. Consider everybody else more significant than yourself. That's a hard part of the passage. Because we can feel all wonderful inside about being unified with Christ. And we can feel all wonderful and warm and cozy inside about being unified with each other. But then when Paul turns the tables and he starts talking to us and addressing us and and say, put others first, that's when it gets difficult. The focus tells you to put others ahead of yourself. And this was such a foreign concept in the first century in the Philippian church. In the Greco-Roman culture, humility was actually looked at as a weakness. If you put others first, you were weak. It wasn't considered a virtue. It was considered a shortcoming. But as I think... Have we changed much in the last 2,000 years? Not really. You can't climb the corporate ladder by looking out for other people. And this is what this world looks like to us. In order to climb the corporate ladder, we need to get to the top by whatever means necessary. And if that means cutting other people down so we can shamelessly walk over them, so be it. Because at the end, I'm on top. I'm significant. We're always trying to feel significant, aren't we? We're fighting for the edge of competition. And I think it's because when we surrender our significance, we feel expendable. And feeling expendable is a horrible feeling, so we boost ourselves up again. We look at ourselves in the mirror, and we convince ourselves that we're beautiful, that we're smart, that we're powerful, because we don't want to feel insignificant. We convince ourselves that the project at work would fall through without us. We convince ourselves that the world stops when we stop. Several years ago, I was at a um, printing place. I was getting a project printed. And there was a man that had helped me out for uh, many times. So we formed somewhat of a relationship, and he knew I was a pastor. And there was one specific time where I was in there, and a woman walks in. And he knew this woman because, you know, I could just tell, by the way, they were talking. They were very friendly with each other. And um, she had asked him what his plans were for the fall. And he had talked about going back to school. And he was going to get some kind of degree in math, I think. And one of the things that just really stuck out to me in that conversation as I overheard it is he said, I'm really excited. However, I'm very scared for my astronomy class. I have to take this astronomy class, and that scares me. Because when I look out and I see just the vastness of the universe, I feel so Small. I feel so insignificant. After their conversation, he wandered my way, and I told him, you know, I couldn't help but overhearing, but I want you to know that the day that I found out I was insignificant was the best day of my entire life. We don't like to be expendable. 
And so we develop this worldview, but the problem with this worldview is that it's completely contradictory to the Bible. What's true is that the world does move on when we're gone. What's true is that workplaces move on when you're gone. I had a a very unique experience in this. Don't get me wrong, I love being here. Um, I, I left... Uh, a former position, and a couple of months had gone on, and I received word that uh, they filled my position, that I left, that I willingly left, because uh, I felt God calling me here. And I remember thinking, they found somebody to replace me? <laughs> and they like him? <laughs> this was a shot through my heart. <laughs> because in my own selfishness, I thought, well, they can't replace me. I was far wrong. The world moves on. Paul says, put others' significance above yourself. Because we need to understand we're not as as significant as we really think. So what's the answer? We have to develop a different worldview. A Christ-like worldview, one that points to others instead of yourself. You may ask, I, I, know, I know we get to, need to be unified. I get that we need to be humble. But what, Mike, does that actually look like? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us. About a decade and a half ago, there was a craze throughout all kinds of churches, and even I found people that didn't go to church wear these, but they had these WWJD bracelets, and it stood for, what would Jesus do? Right? It was a huge craze. You'd see certain kids with like 15 of them, because that made you more holy, I guess. Um, But the reason we can ask, what would Jesus do? is because we can look at the Scripture, we can look at God's Word, and we can say, what did Jesus do? And Paul tells us what Jesus did. So let's look at 5 through 7 again. Verses 5 through 7. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our attitude should be like Christ. In verse 6, we, we, it is affirmed that Jesus Christ is God. He always was God. There will never be a time that he's not God. Okay, He was God sitting on the throne of heaven. But he didn't consider that something to be grasped. What does that mean? He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. It means that he didn't look at this equality with God, this glory that God was getting, as something that he needed to selfishly hold on to. Quite the opposite of selfish ambition, isn't it? Christ, if he was selfishly ambitious, would have said, no, I I want what's best for me. I'm staying right here. But no. He actually comes down and he empties himself of all of the glory. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. 
Now, does that mean that he ceased to be God? That he gave up being God? No. If there's anything that you can understand from this morning, know that Jesus Christ never ceased to be God. Even as a human, he was fully God. He was fully human and fully God. So what did he give up? He gave up something, and what he gave up was all of the glory and all of the glamour that went along with being God. He was still God, but he came down as a servant, as a slave. He could have come down as a king, and people could have worshipped worshipped him from the from the get go. But no, he came down as a helpless baby. He was born in a feeding trough where livestock ate. Incredible what he gave up to come to us. He laid aside all of that glory and came to us because he loved us. And he didn't come just as any man. He came as a servant. A servant king. We have a hospitality team here at First Alliance Church. And several weeks ago, I decided that um, it would be nice to honor our graduating seniors from high school. And so we put on a senior night. And this hospitality team put on a very, very nice dinner for the youth group. And it wasn't just seniors, it was the whole youth group. Now I want to give you a picture. A a picture an adult serving, humbly, a seventh grader. That's humility. And they didn't get anything in return. And they didn't expect anything in return. Nobody tipped them. Nobody paid them. I'm sure there were kids that ran through that line and didn't even thank them. Yet they humbly served with happy, joyful servants' hearts. Paul doesn't stop there explaining Jesus. Not only did he come down as a man, he came down as a servant man. And not only as he came down as a servant, but he became obedient to death even death on a cross. Now in our culture, you walk uh, into a church and you'll see crosses everywhere. We sing about the cross. We talk about the cross. But know that this, when Paul said this, he had shock value when when he said this because people didn't talk about the cross back then in casual conversation. And the reason being was because the, the cross was a device used to kill people. It was a device used to display the death penalty. It was the most painful death. It was the most painful death. In fact, the, our word excruciating, the origins of that word come from the idea or uh, just how they would describe the pain that someone experiences while on the cross. They created a new word, and excruciating literally could mean of the cross or from the cross. That's the kind of pain that people went to. It was such a humiliating form of punishment that it was only and mostly reserved for non-Roman, lower-class citizens, especially slaves. And it was so cruel that it was outlawed as a form of punishment in the 4th century. People were against the law to crucify anybody. Do you realize what Christ did for you so that you could have a relationship with God as it was originally designed? Christ has set the standard for humility. He had it all. 
But he stepped down from that to become a servant and to go to the cross. He went 100% of the way. So many times in our relationships and our marriages, we say, I'll go halfway if he or she meets me halfway. I'll go 50% of the way if you go 50%. I give a little and you give a little, and that's a happy relationship, right? No, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you go 100% no matter what the other person does, because you can't control them. I praise God for when He looked at me and saw a sinful wretch, He didn't say to me, Mike, I'll meet you halfway. He came all of the way to us. The whole story of the Bible teaches not how we get to God, but how God came to us. Because if He required us to come just a little bit, we couldn't. can't. And so He came to us. And some of you are still rejecting that. Christ came all the way and was obedient to death, even death on a cross, and you still reject that. I say this with a heavy heart, not an arrogant heart, but a heavy heart, that one day you're going to realize that you've been wrong. And the reason I can say that is because Paul mentions it right here in Philippians at the end of our passage In verses 9 through 11, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you're either going to do that. You're either going to confess Christ in the presence of our almighty creator. Or you're going to confess Christ in utter torment from being separated from God for eternity. Don't leave here without really looking into your heart and making a decision about how you feel about Christ and if you're willing to let Him change you. So, we're called to be unified. But the only way, First Alliance, that we're going to be unified as a church is by demonstrating the humility that Christ demonstrated.